Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. I'm your host, Andrew Sola. Perhaps you've seen the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off, also known as Ferris macht Blau in German. Towards the end of the film, Ferris and his friends find themselves in a joyful parade on the streets of downtown Chicago. It's the Steuben Day Parade, which honors one of America's founding fathers, who was born in Germany, which was Prussia at the time. This man was a military commander by the name of Friedrich Wilhelm August Heinrich Ferdinand von Steuben. Von Steuben served under George Washington and modernized the Continental Army. Of course, the city of Chicago did not exist during the War of Independence, but Chicago has a long history of German immigration starting in the 19th century. And the Steuben Day Parade is one way that Chicagoans celebrate their German heritage. So today we're going to do a deep dive into the history of German Chicago with a global expert on the subject, Dr. Sebastian Wupper. Welcome, Sebastian. Hi. Glad to be here. It's great that you don't have as many middle names as von Steuben, or do you? I just have one. And it's and it's Peter, so it's it's <laughs> simple. Okay, uh, Sebastian Wupper received his PhD in history and his MA in public history from Loyola University Chicago. A native of Berlin, Germany, he wrote his dissertation on the nineteenth-century German-American milieu in Chicago. He is currently engaged as a postdoctoral scholar with Loyola University Chicago researching and documenting the entanglement of the university in the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. He also works as an expert consultant and a writer for high school-level history textbook projects. So, Sebastian, just so you know, in previous episodes, we learned about the history of Chicago and the Great Lakes region from the end of the Ice Age, about 12,000 years ago, through the early 1800s. We discuss Native American history and the beginning of European settlements in the region. Then we learned about the War of 1812, and we learned that the Potawatomi Indians, who were allied with the British, burned Chicago's Fort Dearborn to the ground in August of 1812. They also captured Detroit and were actually in a position to regain control over the Great Lakes region. However, the British sold out their Native American allies in the treaty that ended the war. This treaty, which returned the Great Lakes region to the pre-war status quo, basically allowed the U.S. government to continue its unchecked expansion into the Midwest and beyond. By 1816, a new Fort Dearborn had been built by the U.S. government, and Native Americans were slowly being forced further west, often at the point of a bayonet. By 1830, Chicago was no longer an isolated trading post in the middle of Indian country. In fact, it was on its way to becoming the Western metropolis that we know today. But still, when the town of Chicago was founded in 1833, 
it only had 200 inhabitants. However, by 1840, it had 4,500. By 1850, 30,000. By 1860, over 110,000. By 1870, 300,000. And by 1880, over half a million. So Chicago is the world's fastest growing city during these decades of the 19th century. And that's worth repeating. It was the world's fastest growing city, going from a mere 200 residents to over a half a million in under 50 years. Imagine being born in Chicago in 1830 and then being a 50-year-old and being like, what's happened here? So, of course, many of these new Chicagoans were German immigrants. So, Sebastian, how would you like to start telling the story of German Chicago? So, Chicago basically had some German elements from the city's very beginnings, as you hinted at, because, well, Chicago's first big boom happened in the 1830s, and that coincided with one of the first big waves of immigration from what would later become, well, unified Germany. I mean, it's that's kind of one of the other things when you talk about Germany at the time. It's kind of difficult to define because that's the German conf- Confederacy, the Deutsche Bund, uh, and it's like it, Germany only really becomes a unified entity in 1871. But anyway, that's kind of a, a thing, something for the pedants, uh, if you want to be pedantic about these things. Well, let, let's define our terms then when we're talking about uh, German immigration. Do you just think of it more generally as German speakers from any number of like the Austro-Hungarian Empire or like in in some in some ways that is how uh, many Americans thought about this. Uh, you will find many immigrants who spoke German primarily and come from places that have German you know place names who are slotted into being German by the American authorities, even though they come from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So so it's it's kind of an interesting question how these people perceived of themselves. Generally, I would think, personally, I, w- I would think of people who spoke German as being part of the larger German cultural sphere, and therefore having some some degree of german is with, with within them it becomes interesting if you start looking at the the later immigrants the the people who partook in the revolutions because these people believed in sort of like a greater german project and so they had an allegiance to a fatherland that didn't really quite exist as a political entity at the time but we're getting ahead of ourselves <laughs> as we know this gets really complicated really fast and that's why we have a historian to explain it so again <laughs> If you had to start telling the story of German Chicago, how would you start that story? So I would start by saying that as Chicago, when Chicago officially received its city charter from uh, the state of Illinois in 1837, the voter rolls for the first mayoral election already contain 13 German names. Uh, and that is only those Germans who knew enough English uh, and who were eligible to vote, and also the ones who made an effort to actually cast the ballot. So we have 13 German names uh, in the first election, and the 
we, we can assume, or at least the the, the early German his, historians who write histories of German Chicago in the 1880s, then list altogether about 30 German names among the earliest settlers. So about 30 out of these 200, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a significant, a significant amount, yeah. And then in um, 1839, you have someone who's either Carl or Clemens. The the first name is not like sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other, so it's not entirely certain. But uh, C. Stose, uh, who was the first German American who was elected to the position of alderman, we do not know which party he belonged to, uh, as the pertinent records onto that were lost in the Great Fire of 1871. And that should also be a side note. If we talk about the early history of Chicago, it tends to be an issue that this great fire burnt so many things up because that ends up uh, making the records a little spotty. Interesting. So what can you tell me about uh, uh, the first German? Is that the Stoza chap? Stoza is is the first the first German American alderman, okay. um, and their early the early Germans in terms of their political affiliation they um, tended to be affiliated with the Democratic Party, because the Whig Party, um, then the the opposition to the Democrats, uh, because the Whig Party was generally more nativist and um, anti-immigrant, uh, and out of the Whig Party come the so-called know-nothings, the the people who just agitate against any kind of immigration to to the United States. Because of of those connections, the at least the early Germans are going with the Democrats because the Democratic Party at this time was actively recruiting Im- immigrant voters. And so we can't assume that Clemens Stoza, that his political affiliation was with was with the Democrats. Uh, but there is, as I said, like the we we don't we don't know for sure. As I said, that's just something I I can assume. But also, the Germans were as this sort of shows like the the Germans organized themselves fairly or, or fairly early on as sort of like a more or less cohesive political unit and took part in took part in elections, but also took part in demonstrations and just defending their Germanness also to the outside to to some degree. And that becomes an, an, an issue as time goes on because Germans uh, with German cultural traits as uh, being merry, getting together and drinking copious amounts of lager beer uh, <laughs> means that they quickly ran afoul of um, the, uh, the temperance movement. Okay. Interesting. Uh, in, in the notes that you sent to me, you said there is a strong contender for the first German. I was thinking about Stoza in that in that regard, and that's okay. because what else? So we know you told me a little bit about his his political background, and he was the first alderman. What else do we know about him? Was he a businessman, a trader? That's that's pretty much it. We don't know anything that's, else about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. The the early the early, the early stuff is, is is fairly difficult to sort of like suss out what what these people were doing exactly. Um, like most. I mean, most of the most of the German immigrants who came to the Midwest in general and ended up being farmers or small artisans. Uh, it's with the 48er generation that you get some people who are 
involved in, in 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 different things because they because these when they are the the people who took part in the revolutions they tended to, like those those revolutionary ringleaders they they tended to be politicians and lawyers and men of letters if, if to employ that term um and the people who came earlier uh they were mostly like you know artisans like if they're in the city they're they're usually artisans mm-hmm. of of some sort mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned the 48ers but before we get to the 48ers let's talk about the Dreisiger, the 30s Hmm. Uh, what do we know about the Germans who came to Chicago in the 30s? Again, using the word Germans in hmm. this very loose sense, we've decided. Uh, you said that they're mostly farmers, maybe some artisans. Uh, any idea of, if, did they come from a specific part of Europe? Um, what do we know about the Dreisiger, the 30ers? So the earlier Im- immigration waves, they, they usually come from like southwestern Germany, that's that's where the earlier immigration waves come from usually and those are the, and this this early immigration wave is uh for the most part caused by a number of bad harvests um high prices and then also uh like high prices for agricultural goods and and, and other and other things which would be good for farmers but the problem is that because of the local land inheritance laws people well especially young men end up uh, with with ever shrinking land inheritance because the in in those parts of germany land holdings were divvied up between the between all the siblings to somewhat equal uh, by, by by somewhat equal measure and that produces these ever shrinking lands that increasingly could no longer support their owners and so leaving the homeland for other parts of the world becomes um, then more attractive, and that's that's where especially the the Dreisiger fall into. But the Germans not only went to the U.S., they also went to Brazil, they also went to other places in South America, and then also to Eastern Europe. So at the time, the U.S. is not yet the prime target necessarily. That only really develops later on especially with the with the 48ers however the dreisiger are the first the first significant wave of german immigration to the united states where in 1832 german immigration for the first time exceeds 10,000 people a year to the us interesting so uh, the, we have these uh, the dreisiger and uh, this stöze was part of the dreisiger or he, yeah, or he yeah. preceded them no, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure he was. He was part of that. Of of that. Of that movement. And and you mentioned he was an alderman. What part of the city was that at the time? Do we still recognize it today? I would. I would think that must have been the north. What would later becomes the north side, or the well, the near near north side, because the the German settlement or the German part of Chicago is uh is basically what today is Old Town, mm-hmm. and just on the north side of the river. Okay, uh, let's move on now to the uh, the second wave of German immigrants, namely the Forty Eighters. You note that some of them left for political reasons, and they did rise to prominence then in mm. Chicago later. So, why don't you describe? And again, I have to say this in great with air quotes, Germany, which didn't exist really in 1848. But um, what was the political upheaval that forced uh, 
them to the United States and then to Chicago. Well, if we talk about the 48ers, uh, we have to just differentiate first between the generation and then um, as, as, as sort of like the wave of immigrants and then the people who are in the more narrow sense, the 48ers, so the, the revolutionaries. Because the, the revolutions, as most revolutions, are carried out in, in, in the broad spectrum by, by the masses, by uh, working people. But they're organized and uh, uh, thought up in, in, in a way uh, by these people who we would call revolutionaries, the, re the revolutionary ringleaders who are more active in, in, who are more active in, in, in local politics. And what are they trying to do in the German-speaking sections of Europe at the time? Mm -hmm. So what they're what they're trying to do what what their idea is that uh, they want to organize Germany, which at this point would be the, the German Confederacy, um, so uh, Prussia, Bavaria, and the various smaller statelets and and duchies and and and, and baronies and whatnot, and they're trying to organize that into one cohesive nation state, into what we today would be thinking of as as a nation state. And so what they're what they're doing is they rise up against the the nobility, and they essentially try to organize this this country along uh, a national kind kind of like along national lines. So basically, what they are they are nationalists at a time when being a nationalist is kind of the new cool thing to be and do, because. Before that didn't like that idea didn't necessarily exist before, especially not before the Napoleonic Wars. The Napoleonic Wars galvanized this idea of Germanness as a cohesive national identity, sort of like against things that are French. Mm -hmm. um, and in the wake of that, uh, you get amongst especially university students uh, this this idea that that Germany should be organized as as a as a larger whole that that is not as divided between you know Prussia and Bavaria and mm -hmm. and the Austro-Hungarians and, and and all of these things and that's and that's essentially what the 48ers want to achieve with their with their revolutions and the important part there is uh that the 48ers look to the United States and the way that the United States employ federalism as a federal republic, um, as the political role model for what they want to turn Germany into. They want to turn Germany essentially into a, f a federal republic modeled on the United States. And that's one of the big reasons why they come to the United States after the revolutions fail. Okay, so they fail and then they need to basically uh, escape persecution. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, they, it's an, they were it's violent or government agents were were on their trail basically basically some of them uh some of them also just basically leave germany because they're just really frustrated with uh with those things not working out in their in, in the way that they thought they 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 should have so like one of the people i studied he ended up being incarcerated for a year or two years and then and then he emigrates to germany after he gets out um, he, emig he immigrates uh, immigrates to the u.s then yeah and then to Chicago. Mm. And his, so he was not a farmer or a small artist. No. Nope. He was an, an educated university student yes. first? Yes. Okay, why don't you tell me a little bit about this person? Yeah, so uh, Wilhelm Rapp, 
grew up, he was the son of a, a son of Lutheran minister and poet Georg Rapp. Um, and he was, and Wilhelm was then set to become a minister himself. He took up the study of theology in uh, the seminary of Blaubeuren at the University of Tübingen. And during his time at the university, Rapp joined the fraternity Norm, uh, Normannia Tübingen. Um, in 1845, and there he was introduced to this nationalist republican ideology, and 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 he he became president of the Tübinger's Tübinger People's Association in 1848, attended a gathering of revolutionary republican associations in in Reutling in May of 1849, and uh, then he organized a group of 50 men, mostly university students and laborers, to lend support. And, and crossed from Württemberg into Baden uh, because like uh, Baden was kind of this hotbed of, of revolutionary fervor and uh, a short-lived republic. And then when uh, the Baden military was defeated uh, less than a month later in 1849, Rupp fled to Switzerland um, where he uh, had took a stint as a teacher at a private school um, and then again returned to, to, re- returned to Schwaben a region on the kingdom of Bavaria's western border to visit his parents. And there he was arrested and charged with high treason and then uh, spent seven months incarcerated in the fortress Hohenasberg. And then he was disappointed and frustrated by the state of affairs in Germany and uh, emigrated to the United States in 1852. And then uh, what was his life like in Chicago? Rapp comes to Chicago fairly late because he most of the people who who eventually end up in Chicago, they first end they up land, in New York. They land in, in New York first, yeah. He is an interesting figure, all right, uh, because he he runs the Baltimore Vecca, so a, a newspaper out of out of Baltimore that's um, a strongly abolitionist, and that brings uh, up up onto his own person the the. the ire of the uh, of of the of the pro slavery people and at, at the at the dawn of the civil war basically um and he has to flee the city because they are basically out to lynch him as the editor of this newspaper and he flees the city in in, uh, in, in under the cover of night and um then makes it to washington um and there is this legend that abraham lincoln offers him uh the position of postmaster general which is it's a legend it's not really true um and uh, f- and then from there on out, as the uh, in, uh, as this this refugee from Baltimore, basically, and with this uh, and, and and with uh, with the uh, reputation he has as the editor of the Vecca, he then ends up in Chicago as one of the editors of the Illinois Staatszeitung, the one of the biggest German American um, newspapers of the Midwest. Interesting. So he was uh, basically a, a double outcast. He was first yeah, cast out yeah. of out of Tübingen or or Baden, or I'm sorry, Schwaben, and then cast out of uh, Baltimore, Maryland, yeah. which was yeah. a Maryland was a slave state. Yeah, yeah. And uh, finds himself in Chicago. Interesting. Uh, what else would you like to tell me about the Forty Eighters in Chicago? Uh, <laughs> they're a really interesting bunch. Because so so what they do is they rise to as I, as as you you said earlier they rise to positions of leadership in in for the German community in Chicago, and what they do is they 
bring the German community of Chicago behind the Republican Party or well away from the Democrats and then into the into the nascent Republican Party as it as it develops basically in the late 1850s and that happens for a number of reasons so first and foremost the 48ers are at least the 48ers in Chicago are by and large strongly abolitionist why is that they locate themselves against slavery because they see a parallel between the southern slaveholding aristocracy and the nobility of Germany that they rose up against. And so they have this sort of like this logical conclusion is we rose up against, you know, the nobility in Germany. Now we have this a similar situation here. Plus, they hold people in bondage. And that's not really something that that we agree with. And so they they organize against that. And then there's also uh, an issue where the Democratic Party alienates them with the, with the Kansas-Nebraska Acts and the, the Clayton Amendment, which uh, is an amendment that a local Democrat, uh, Stephen A. Douglas, or one of the like, – who, who runs against Lincoln, basically. Um, but Stephen A. Douglas, who up to that point had been championed by the German community – Douglas puts his weight behind the Clayton Amendment, which would uh, disenfranchise immigrants in in Kansas territory, and and basically make it impossible for immigrants to own land there. And that's sort of something that German Americans feel betrayed by. On top of the whole thing, where the Democratic Party is for slavery, and so that they take then as uh, kind of the the inciting incident to really go against the Democrats um, and really throw themselves behind. The, the Republicans, even though the Republicans come out of the Whig Party and have this reputation among the larger immigrant community to not necessarily be too positive on matters of immigration, but they sort of say, well, that that's one thing. Ultimately, what matters more is that they're against the slaveholders. So that's that's why we organize behind them. And so then the German, well, then the 48ers in German Chicago, first they, they end up electing the Republican mayor, and then from there on out, after they have sort of proven themselves as this helpful political bloc for the, for the Republican Party, they get roped in by the Lincoln campaign to help Lincoln get elected president, basically, and, that's, and, and, the, the, and they successfully deliver the voting bloc, like the Germans, as Germans in Illinois largely come out for Lincoln. And that again, and, and that's that's then also a, a point of contention between the Dreisiger and the 48er, because the Dreisiger largely were not necessarily on board with uh, changing their political allegiance, and also just saw it in, as a thing where uh, the, the immigrants shouldn't necessarily meddle this much in in local politics. And the the 48ers in general have like a couple; they do a couple of things that are not necessarily the smartest moves in terms of endearing themselves to Americans. They um, do things where they organize Sunday sort of excursions uh, outside of the city to um, hang out in parks and fields outside of the city to drink their, to, to get together, be merry and drink their beer on this, on the Sunday. But then they also make a point of marching past the packed American churches yeah. and sort of like make fun of the, uh, make a little fun of the um, uh, uh, church going Americans. And that's, and then that then does not necessarily get them a lot of friends. <laughs> 
So, so it's interesting. A couple of things you said there are interesting. First of all, that they had organized themselves, at least the 48ers, into a, a clear voting block. And people mm-hmm. who know the history of Chicago know that uh, cohesive uh, and unified immigrant voting blocks are wielded very well by politicians in the city. And if you can bring a voting coalition or a voting block, uh, favors will be returned to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the other, yeah. Do you want to comment on I, that? Yeah, that's that's I, and that's a thing that then also happens. So the um, uh, and that's that's another another guy who well eventually becomes the owner of the Illinois Staatszeitung, this newspaper, because he was found to be a, a brilliant orator who really managed to whip up the German saloon crowds basically to to come out for uh for the republicans and he his name is anton kaspar hazing he was actually not a 48er he came a little earlier uh he goes to cincinnati and then and there he uh works at a at a grocery at a grocery store but then becomes involved in politics uh, and finds that he has kind of a knack for for political agitation and then he comes to Chicago, and there he uh, opens up a bricklaying business or brick making business, actually. And uh, that's where he is then discovered as by the by the German Republicans as being this guy who can whip up the the people. And for his um, accomplishments for the Republican Party, he gets rewarded with the office of sheriff. Hmm. <laughs> and it's kind of like one of these things where it was, it was normal like, for like, Chicago. Yeah, where I was like, "That's that's awfully early for this to be a thing." And then because he, and then because he's sheriff, that's that's a lucrative office, and he he gets fairly wealthy through that, and that allows him then to buy into the Staatszeitung. Now, was he whipping up the crowds in both German and in English, or his role was really just to, and I do want to get into to the language issues too, but the Staatszeitung was clearly a German language newspaper, yep. but yep. Is, is this fellow, the sheriff, was he was he uh, whipping up the German population auf Deutsch? Auf Deutsch, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. How, how slowly did these various generations, the Dreisiger and then the 48ers, uh, sort of lose their their German language culture. Uh, that's an interesting an interesting question that has has a lot of caveats to it. So the Forty Eighters are instrumental in turning Chicago's public education at least a slight bit towards Germanness. They introduced German um, lesson in Chicago public education, for lack of a better word in the 60s in those in the 1860s and that's like a, an ongoing point of contention should that be a thing should that not be a thing um teaching the german language teaching the teaching schools. the german language in public schools yes mm-hmm. and so, so they maintain a fairly sizable i want to say german subculture to to some degree basically up until the united states entry into the first world war and that's basically the, the breaking point because with the entry into the first world war anti-german sentiment really comes to a boiling point and that's when most german americans abandon their germanness and just embrace being americans yeah. and for for other reasons a lot of german language newspapers fold at the time because german any german language newspaper that was published in the u.s 
had to, by law, deliver a translation of every article they were publishing the next day to the post office the day before publication. And if you've ever worked in translation, that's not really something uh, that is... Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that basically breaks the neck of of German America, and it's it's it never quite recovers after that. But that's the that's the First World War, and we're not quite there yet. Yeah. So let's let's go back to the the um, we've talked about the role of German Chicagoans in the abolitionist movement, hmm. and I think it's funny that you note that they were also anti uh, temperance. But where where did can you just describe this their the anti-temperance thing? What's going on there? Uh, so, so, and, and because it's there's the stereotype that the Germans mm-hmm. like their beer, um, but it, it's kind of not a stereotype then too the way you're describing it. Yeah, no, it's 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 not. So uh, the way I've seen it described, um, where 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 this like there is a misunderstanding, like a cross-cultural misunderstanding that sort of leads to this point where where the German, the, the prototypical German is, is described as this, well, they drink beer a lot. So obviously they're drunk a lot. <laughs> um, but there is a distinct difference in drinking culture between the English-speaking world and and the, the German-speaking world. And that is that, and that's, that's funny enough, still true today to some degree, where the, the Germans largely drink beer. They don't drink ales, they drink beer, they drink lager beer that is generally lower in alcohol content than what most of the English speakers drink. The English speakers drink uh, spirits, whiskey, gin, and ales. You tend to get drunk a lot faster on these. And then also Germans don't necessarily get together to get drunk together. They get together to be together. And while they're together, there is drinking involved. And, and so from from that comes this thing where where Americans look onto this and like, well, they're hanging out, they're drinking beer, so they must be drunk all the time, which they're not necessarily, or not to the degree that the the people who go to the to the what, what the editors of the Staatszeitung uh, describe as Schnapskneipen, <laughs> um, uh, so like like Schnapps uh, uh, taverns, basically, yeah. and and that's where the Germans draw the ire of the temperance movement in the 1850s comes uh, comes to a big clash when uh chicago elects a, a pro-temperance mayor who tries to basically out like outlaw drinking on the sabbath and 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 tries to shut down a lot of a lot of the, the immigrant saloons and then germans and irish join together because well the irish are also targeted by this because mm-hmm. you know like they're also st- Stereotypically, stereotypically drunk. Now, whether or not the Irish are actually more drunk than the Germans, I can't really say that. That's not like I didn't study the Irish, but the Germans and the Irish work together in 1855 and uh, basically organize what <laughs> becomes known as the Lagerbier Riot. <laughs> and uh, uh, like this, and then they march on City Hall, and there's like almost a, a very violent, like it co- almost comes to comes to a, a, a really violent confrontation with the, with the police. But then, uh, and they're rioting to guarantee that they're still able to brew and consume beer. In basically, the city. yeah, yeah, basically. And then the 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 like this riotous mob marches towards City Hall, but then. Uh, uh, 
bridge warden sort of like sees them coming and pulls the bridge up so they can't cross into the loop so they can't actually reach city hall and then the the mob kind of disperses and and that was that but the mayor then gets gets ousted the the next year because at in the at the time chicago had mayoral elections every year hmm. staying with the temperance subject it sounds like there is also a religious part of this yes and you mentioned much earlier that uh, the germans came and the dreisiger came from the southwest of germany which is a catholic part mm. was it also partly a catholic versus protestant thing in that the 48ers were they also by and large catholic not practicing necessarily but of a catholic culture that was not anti-alcohol uh, the 48ers are kind of difficult in that regard because they're they tend to be largely anti-clerical mm-hmm. so they're not anti-religion they're anti-organized religion and they come from uh, various parts of the, of the country not necessarily not necessarily just from just from southern germany and that's because the revolution was uh was a national phenomenon uh, a national phenomenon you had revolutions in baden but you also had revolutions in uh saxony you also had parts of the revolution that happened in in berlin and so that's that's really from all over the place so religion like like the religion well maybe as a cultural aspect to some degree plays a role for the 48ers but not not that much opposition to temperance is something that they mostly see as an as, as an american nativist opposition to immigration and to immigrants and because the temperance movement is really employed across the decades from the 50 from the from the 1850s onwards uh, repeatedly against against the immigrants um and specifically in chicago in the chicago context specifically against the irish and the germans fascinating it just goes to show that there are always reasons that the nativist trend in American history has to demonize various Mm. uh, immigrant groups. And obviously there are, I'm sure, uh, temperate uh, German and Irish immigrants, but uh, painting an entire ethnic group with a wide brush is an easy way of of preventing them from accessing, say, governmental power. Uh, But as it turns out, the Germans were very good in Chicago at, as we said earlier, being a solid political mm-hmm. block, which meant that they could enter the ruling classes, as it were. And I, and I want to use that as our segue into the next big part of German Chicago history, and that is going into the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So the 48ers, we note, are anti-clerical, they're anti-slavery, and of course, at this time, then getting into the late fifties and then the early sixties, the the Civil War is approaching. How does German Chicago react to what's happening and the build up to the Civil War and then the Civil War itself? So they the German Chicagoans follow the developments very closely, or rather, it's it the the events that lead up to the Civil War are, are covered very closely in the German language newspapers. And then once uh, the war breaks out, the Germans in Chicago are fairly are, are pretty pretty fast in organizing volunteers to fight in in the war. And to to do that, they they then draw in 
uh, people like Friedrich Hecker, who was himself uh, a leader in the like a like a military leader in the in the in the Baden Revolution, mm-hmm. and he was kind of like he like at the time he had a he had a fairly high standing among the among the revolutionaries too because he was basically seen as a war hero. Sure, his his efforts failed, but um, nonetheless, he was somebody that people knew and trusted and looked up to as somebody who was uh, who had fought for German sort of liberation from the from the, the the yoke of nobility, and they bring him into well, actually, they they organized this regiment of volunteers, um, and then basically approach him and say, hey, uh. uh <laughs> Colonel Hecker, we have organized a regiment for you. Would you like to lead this? And he's first like a little like okay, but uh, eventually they 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 convince him to to lead this to lead this regiment. And the Chicago Germans are not are, are not alone there. Germans across um, across the country organized. There's uh, regiments out of New York. There's regiments out of Ohio, who are among the first. Ethnic, well, so-called ethnic regiments. It's still like to me, it's still weird to think of uh, the German regiment as ethnic, but that's just uh, how how the past works. Most of them do eventually see action, and uh, <laughs> but as the civil war progresses, uh, they get blamed as being cowardly and uh, and and get blamed for a couple of defeats by uh, uh defeats of the union armies but if you look into what was actually going on there it's actually this this was mostly baseless uh mostly just blaming the immigrant regiments for for the general defeats that that the union army had um at at uh individual battles uh, and and that that gets picked up by the big anglophone newspapers and played up basically to to some degree smear the immigrants and and to to further like some sense of anti-german sentiment and yeah and that's that that then gets the the newspaper people up up in arms against like what's going on there like that's not like our people are not coward are not cowardly but uh it's they're they're kind of fighting a bit of a losing battle there because just the Anglo- there's more anglophone newspapers than there is german language newspapers and um and the germans make for it like the germans in that regard just make for an easier easy scapegoat mm-hmm. so do you happen to know how the construction of these regiments went on would would this be something where young men would be gathered as you noted on one of their picnics where they're drinking lager beer and they get they then get uh spoken to by someone like the baker slash brick maker mm-hmm. who says this is something that we german americans really need to support and you need to now sign up for our german regiment and go off to the front is this kind of how this general process of recruitment would work for the german ethnic regiments in part yes but also what drove recruitment there was also the, the Tonverein. Um, okay, I think well, we still yeah, have. You explain the, 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 the Tonverein. Now we're back to the Tonverein. So the Tonverein is is a 
kind of a curious thing. Um, it's it's basically it's a gymnastics club that is uh, also a political club and uh, a place where people come to do some you know gymnastics fitness exercises drink beer and talk politics which seems kind of counterintuitive but then and then also they are german nationalists because they come out of uh, directly the aftermath of the napoleonic wars and and they really furthered this idea of uh, german nationalism and as and because of that they were outlawed in in prussia for example sort of like had to do their gymnastics practices in in, in sort of like covertly and then then members of the 48 revolution uh, a lot of them are members of the of the turn of, of the tone fine uh, as well and, uh, and 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 they successfully very successfully transplant the whole thing to the united states as a social club um where they then uh built the the the, the turnhallen that were as americans would call it turner halls mm-hmm. um some of them are still around today at least the buildings. I mean, the the the, the actual associations largely folded uh, with the with the death of German America and like mostly with the First World War. Some of them are still around as like sports associations. They've but like if there's still um, remnants of of those organizations around, they are no longer like have long since ceased being political in any way and are j- just really mostly just just sort of athletics organizations basically but yeah but at the time uh they were in a very important social club especially for the for, for the 48ers they were largely like for the time like the 48ers they were largely progressive in terms of their politics and uh yeah and in chicago they were very important in in terms of organizing these uh these volunteer regiments yeah, so like they would they would do volunteer drives at the at the weekly gatherings, and then they would also they 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 would buy basically ads in the newspaper to say hey mm-hmm. uh, we're recruiting for this regiment, um, and then also because the newspaper people had their own connections to the tone fine, they would also then editorialize for that. Do, so, do you happen to know about how many men were in this or these regiments from Chicago? Because Chicago in the 1860s isn't a huge city; it's still only 112,000 people. Yeah, um, it it wasn't that many because the the very first regiment um, was uh, not just Germans. It was the first ethnic regiment, but it was a regiment that was not not exclusively made up made up of Germans. I don't have exact numbers though. Okay, so let's let's move on to after the end of the Civil War. Uh, these uh, German soldiers coming back to Chicago after the end of the Civil War. What what is the city like for them, and what is what are their neighborhoods like? Uh, so after the Civil War, or throughout the sixties, basically the north the, the north side of Chicago becomes firmly firmly German, and uh, at the end of the sixties, it's the the in terms of in terms of demographics it is thought that basically one out of three chicagoans was born in germany or well what later becomes germany or is is mm-hmm. you know, born in german speaking europe and that's around 1870 yeah yeah wow that that's that's an amazing statistic so so what happens after the after the war is that 
so the the Germans in Chicago uh, are very active in mourning Lincoln, which is apparently not something that happened across the German speaking uh, German speaking America. So what happens in Chicago is that the various singing societies. So let's well, that requires kind of like another another quick explanation. So first, so you have the Tonfein, which is probably the most important social club. Uh, but Germans are a, a people of associations and societies, and another important group of associations and societies are the singing societies, the Gesangsvereine. After the war, the what used to be a, a, a veritable chorus of singing societies, to, to abuse that term, um, uh, they find themselves after the war being, like, having not enough members to for all of these individual singing societies to keep going. And so... At Lincoln's beer, as Lincoln is lying, is lying in state in Chicago, members of these various disparate singing societies come together, and at the link, while Lincoln is lying in state, they organize a new singing society that eventually becomes the Germania Menachor, which uh, is like an organization that exists well into the 20th century as kind of like the foremost Chicago singing society. Um, I, I always found that kind of like an interesting tidbit because like even today you see like there the, there's the the Germania building in Chicago that's just um, like kitty corner from uh, Chicago from from the Chicago History Museum mm-hmm. that that goes back to these men meeting basically getting together at, as Lincoln is lying in state and they're like okay we want to sing some hymns to Lincoln but our mm-hmm. our singing societies are all just you know just uh, ravaged by by the losses from the war. So we just reorganize, mm-hmm. and uh, that—that's where that comes from. Then, yeah. So I, I think this is maybe a, a good point to pause and end this first half of our look at the history of German Chicago. And for me, what's very interesting is how over over the course of the nineteenth century, there is this ebb and flow, as it were, of how strong German cultural traditions mm. are first imported into the U.S., into Chicago, and, and how they're able in certain ways to to stay strong. And in other respects, they have to adapt to the new reality they're facing in Chicago. But it's still interesting that there are certain bedrocks of Germanic culture, maybe that's a yeah. broader term we can agree to, and namely it's the German language newspapers, mm. and then it's these different types of community associations, I guess we'd call them, yeah, the, yeah. the Turnvereine and the singing societies, which form basically bedrocks of, of maintaining German culture in Chicago. Yeah, like the newspaper is, is I mean, first of all, the newspaper is one of the things I studied the closest just because there is such a plethora of information there. I, I just found a, a very dense archive. They have like almost almost gapless coverage from basically the early Civil War up until up until the 1880s in, in, in the, at the New Makes it Life easier for a historian, Chicago. yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and because of that, I can I, I can show the central role that the new that this newspaper played in in like as this linchpin 
between the the various societies, the political organizations, but then also between Germany, like be, between the German homeland and and uh, and the German American community in Chicago, because they had correspondents who would write to them from like from the German homelands, or they would just send people there to write back home. And then also just because the United States had a free press and Germany did not, that then oftentimes resulted in some weird, like some really weird things where uh, the the German American press would um, sometimes report about things that happened in Germany faster than some German presses could just because of the way, A, that the telegraph worked, because the telegraph inside of germany was not as well established as the telegraph was in the united states but then if but when but then if somebody someone from germany sent telegraphic news dispatch to the united states that would happen faster than it could within germany and then also because of censorship laws people the, the newspaper in germany and in the united states could be published quicker and with with fewer um hurdles than it could be in germany and so you have then like these weird things where, you know, the German American newspaper in Chicago will write about some happenings at the at Prussian court before the newspapers in Berlin will have necessarily written about that. Interesting. So today we covered the early inhabitants of Chicago of Germanic ancestry. Namely, we had uh, Stoza, the first German alderman. We discussed the Dreisiger, the Germans who emigrated in the 30s, as well as the 48ers. And we got a sense of how German culture sort of was a part of Chicago politics and more broadly American politics with their Mm -hmm. support of Lincoln, with their support of abolition. And indeed, we saw that they were strong supporters of the Union cause during the Civil War. Now, uh, in the second episode, we're going to take it from basically the end of the Civil War, but I think we need to then look at what's going on back in Germany, which Mm -hmm. again, we might be able to start talking about Germany as Germany in the next episode, and we'll look at how what was happening in Europe affected German Chicago. So, Dr. Wupper, thank you very much for giving us the first part of this history. Sure. And I look forward to discussing the second half of our history with you next time for our next episode. Danke schön. All right. Gern geschehen. Und auf Wiedersehen. so you know once again the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host not the america centrum which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy thanks again for listening